This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Where we have a lot of global Christians who face actual persecution, they model for us so many things. We find a lot of hope from the margins, people that we've probably marginalized ourselves, to say maybe it's time for us to stop treating you like our little brothers and sisters. And even more than just bringing a, a, an attitude of equality, maybe we need to take a listening posture towards you. If you were to judge the Christian and political landscape on Twitter, you might be tempted just to simply shut down your computer and walk away, not only from Twitter, but also from the church. Because it's a place of fear and mudslinging and a sense in which we can't hold things in tension or even in tandem very well anymore. Well, is there hope for the American church? In this conversation, I sit down with Pastor Eric Costanzo, and we talk about his recent book, Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. He's written it with Daniel Yang and Matt Sorens, and it's a great and hopeful combination about how we might move forward in the church today. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. During the next three months, during June, July, and August, you can expect episodes to release every other Tuesday. As the seasons change and our schedule changes, I hope it allows you to not miss an episode. So I'll see you back in two weeks. Friends, I am joined on the podcast today with a pastor, Eric Costanzo, and he has written a book called Inalienable with a missiologist, Daniel Yang, and nonprofit leader, Matthew Sorens, all about how marginalized kingdom voices can help save the American church. So thank you so much for being here, Eric. Glad to be here, Ashley. Thank you. You are so welcome. So tell us, like, first of all, I'm just curious as a fellow author, how do you write a book with three, three people? Wow, you uh, you nailed huge difficulty there. Um, not because of Daniel and Matthew, or or maybe because of me, but uh, it we we tried to write this book in one voice, and so that's incredibly challenging. Right. Instead of saying, "Okay, we'll just take chapters and put our names on top of the chapter," uh, so I think that was probably a, a, a significant challenge that we all tried to contribute to each chapter. And we tried to edit and refine each other's voices and add, add you know, in illustrations and improvements. And at the end, I think we got really good at that, but that was really hard. But I'm just so thankful because this project began me working by myself a few years ago. And I just, I just was running into blocks. I just couldn't get hmm. the whole thing 
coming together and and Daniel and Matt just unlocked it. And I'm so thankful for hmm. their contributions hmm. and that we ended up getting to share the project. Yeah. What does it look like to, you know, what do you each bring to the table? You I mean, you all have kind of an area of expertise. So as you're tackling this large question about being hopeful for the American church and centering marginalized voices, what do each of you bring that was really important maybe to getting you unstuck? You know, I think all three of us have strong missiological training. Though I am a pastor of a local church, I've had quite a bit of missiological training. So is Daniel and and Matt. His is very practical working for world relief. He's so engaged in churches, but related to the issues of immigration, refugee resettlement, those kinds of things. We have a lot of personal experience working with the nations internationally and the nations here and inside of our borders in the United States. And so we, but, but then in the practical part of our daily lives, I'm, seeing that come to fruition in the life of a local church. Daniel's seeing that in a lot of church planting and training of leaders. Matt is seeing that in the actual execution of refugee resettlement and immigration work, but also going to lots of local churches all over mm-hmm. the country and helping them engage with this with those topics. So the, it, I, I feel like it gave us a very well-rounded approach for the three of us to work together. You know, as I was reading your book, and, I, and I'm thinking through this tension that you you hold on to and create this, this sense of which, on the one hand, we can we see all around us the failures of the American church, both institutionally and locally and what have you. Um, and then the other hand, we also see a ton of particularly younger people leaving the church. So what is your word of hope for us, you know, as we consider what more marginalized kingdom voices can actually contribute to giving us hope here in America? Yes, we, uh, we identify those concerns you raised from the very outset, and, and we've even joked, if, if you don't get past the seventh or eighth paragraph of the book, you're going to think this is going to be just another you know critical piece, but it's really not. It's a very hopeful book because we have personally found so much hope in the voices from the margins and in ways that the Lord is working in the global church, in in, in parts of the world that in in the past, we either might have said they were unreached or we would focus more on things that were social conditions there. And now the the church is just exploding and, and they are serving in, in ways that are bringing so much life into places where there's a lot of death. So that brings us hope because we see those failures. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of signs of unhealth inside the American church. We know that younger people are leaving, or if they've never even been apart, they, they're they're very disinterested. And we see those things and we're very concerned about them. But again, we wanted to write in a hopeful way. And we find that hope also in the ancient church, in the historic church. We're not mm-hmm. the first generation mm-hmm. to deal with unhealth <laughs> right. in the church. We're not the first generation yes. to have concerns about where our culture is headed. And we're not the first generation to make mistakes of, of trying to go into battle against culture in unbiblical ways. So where we have a lot of global Christians who face actual persecution, they model for us so many things and, and the foundations upon which their behavior is built is, is scripture and, and a, a very close personal walk with the Lord. So we find a lot of hope from the margins, people that we've probably marginalized ourselves to say, maybe it's time for us 
to stop treating you like our little brothers and sisters. And even mm-hmm. more than just bringing a, a, an attitude of equality, maybe we need to take a listening posture towards you and help yeah. you see some ways that we can get this thing back headed in the right direction. From the margins, what do you see as kind of maybe the top several you know, lessons that the American Western or Western or white church could learn? Um, you know, what are the things that you would point to, whether it's, you know, a, a focus on the scriptures or a sense in which, of, you know, having hope amidst persecution, but what would you say are maybe something that could help save, as you say, <laughs> the, you know, the American church, um, a few lessons or, you know, postures, lessons cheapens it. I don't want to say it like that, but, you know, um, a few postures or attitudes that you've seen either in theologians from more marginalized places or in practice? That's a fantastic question. And those observations have been very meaningful to us personally. Um, A a couple of things come to mind. One is almost every global Christian that we talk to, so a a believer living in another part of the world, in many cases they're in the majority world, they're in in situations where there's a a lot more poverty and and, and a lot of, of, of just right up front social issues in front of them they almost all commented on what they see as a weakness of the American church is our heavy focus on individualism. And they talked about Mm -hmm. how where one of the strengths of their churches is the idea of community and the sense of interdependence that they don't even have to name. It's just there. And there is, there Mm -hmm. is much stronger perspective of, of a collective communal, you know, if one of us sins, we all own it. If, there's a need wow. for repentance. We talk about that communally, not just for the individual. And and though it's it's a strength of the American church to have a focus on personal sin, we seem to push back against the idea that we ought to re- repent as a as a community corporately, even for sins that were done in Christ's name before us, before we lived. And yeah. um, but also just that inter- interdependence that looks a lot like the Book of Acts. You know, nobody's going without. We sacrifice for each other. Yeah. We're very aware of the needs inside our community and outside our community of faith. Another is that there's there, there's not a sense of needing to separate biblical faithfulness and things like social justice or or social improvement. Right. There's a they're they're not arguing and debating that. They're saying we believe right. the Bible has called us to both orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice. And we don't believe we can yep. separate the two. Faith without works is dead, you know? So they're they're a little bit yep. confused as to why that's such a heated debate because I think they would naturally <laughs> say, we, we don't lean heavily on one or the other. We see those two working together, not even in tension, but in tandem. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. And then um, yeah. I think uh, uh, another thing that, that kind of uh, jumps out to us is when they face persecution in areas where some of these folks are significantly persecuted. I think of folks we interviewed from the Middle East or from India. They talk about the biblical responsibility they see to honor everyone, even those who persecute them. And and to represent... Like First Peter, right? Where he's like, honor the emperor. And you're like, what? <laughs> even though I'm getting persecuted? Absolutely. You know, our and, American hackles. <laughs> just yeah. And Peter says, it. look at Jesus when he was... When he was being crucified and attacked and insulted, he did not retaliate. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we he, the, the the picture there is honor the emperor, but it's also honor everyone. Yeah. And I think yeah. that these folks, man, they are not organizing militias and they're not, it's not that they're against uh, activism or addressing policies or, or asking for support from, from leaders, but they're not doing so in a retaliatory way. They're not doing so in a way that enacts violence or insults or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, persecutes back. And I think that's very instructive as well. It is. And it feels probably really hard to figure out how we get from here to there. What does that look like for you and your personal pastoral ministry as you've had these interviews and written this book to figure about, you know, to begin to either dismantle some of those myths of individualism that America is built on, or, you know, what does it look like to begin to create that sort of thicker community when the structures that we have in place are, you know, nuclear family oriented or, you know, just even individually oriented? What does that look like on the ground for you? It's, it's really hard and on the ground in the American church because our the, the folks that we do, we're doing life with in our church are influenced daily by so many other places besides their re- reading of scripture or, you know, the time right. we spend together in the word or in worship. And they're constantly hearing, you should be concerned. You should be afraid. You should see this group as a threat. You know, mm-hmm. you, you should uh, equate your faith with this ideology that's really not rooted in scripture. And so it's hard because people are afraid and they, yeah. they see, and, and, and many of the concerns that we hear are legitimate. There are legitimate cultural concerns and there are significant more moral drift happening in lots of areas. And, and, and the church is complicit in some of that at times. And so it's really hard to get past the fear and emotion that comes from a lot of fear, hmm. whether legitimate fear or not. And to, to come back to the models for us there in the New Testament or, you know, Christians throughout history who have who have been persecuted or have been the minority um, or the, um, you know, the global church today and how they're modeling this for us. But it happens through relationship. I mean, you do have your folks here. They appreciate a well-reasoned argument. They like the biblical content. Mm-hmm. They, they want to learn the history and, and hear. But but really what is more meaningful for most people is if they meet someone who is modeling that for them, they can see a living, breathing example. We're blessed in our community here in Tulsa, Oklahoma to have a lot of immigrants and refugees in close proximity to our church. And many of them Mm -hmm. are here because they were persecuted for their Christian faith. Now we have lots of Muslim refugees and, you know, Hindu immigrants and others who don't identify as Christian. But we have a lot of folks from places like Myanmar. Um, we, mm-hmm. we have some Christians who have come to us from the Middle East, from China. Um, they've experienced significant persecution from, from India, you know, and they, they can model that for us and tell the real stories while clearly exhibiting incredible amount of grace and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, and when we talk to them, when I talk to them personally about, you know, how can you help the American church? They're so gracious about it. You know, like the first thing they'll say is, hmm. well, we're so thankful for American Christians because American missionaries were the ones who, who brought the, 
message of the gospel of Christ to our grandparents, you know, and they don't want to disparage the American (laughs) church, but if you'll dig a little deeper, they'll say, well, yeah, we see some of those concerns (laughs) and, um, you know, we, we'd like to help if you'll let us and we're thankful for that. Yeah. You bring up really great points about both the fear, um, that can kind of take over any sort of movement forward or change, right? Because when we, when we're afraid, we just pull back often or we fight, but, you know, but there's definitely no change in reasoning happening when we're afraid. Um, and just the, the importance of being in proximity with people who've experienced something different so that it's humanized, right? These aren't big headlines to fight against. Yeah, I agree. And, and I'm thankful for those living, breathing folks that, that God has, I believe, brought to us as a blessing including those who aren't believers. Uh, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. one thing that I definitely sensed in our church when I came as pastor six years ago, but I think it's just kind of indicative of our community and where we live. There was a lot of Islamophobia, a lot of people who were very concerned when we started really opening our doors to the immigrants and refugees for English classes, citizenship classes, Bible studies, things we were doing. They were really concerned when we talked about the fact that a lot of our neighbors were Muslim. And in the last, Hmm. we've seen a lot of great progress in the last six years of just those relationships changing hearts and opinions. But in the last nine, 10 months, we received over 850 folks from Afghanistan. And uh, in in the midst of that crisis, Tulsa became a, a large receiving city. And our church took the lead. We were actually in charge of the airport and the transportation from the airport. So that means all 850 plus nice. who came through our main resettlement agency <laughs> met someone from our church at the airport or at their hotel. It's a, it wow. was amazing. Yeah. It was a lot of work too. And these wonderful, beautiful people yeah, I imagine. fleeing in, in just unthinkable circumstances. Every single one of them has been a gift to our church because they are so hospitable, kind, mm-hmm. delightful. And, and they've faced so much trauma, but I, I had several members of our church who volunteered, said, okay, we're in, we'll help. Said, I had never met a Muslim that wasn't a restaurant owner or somebody. I'd never actually sat down and, and then I end up with this person mm-hmm. and I'm doing their intake, you know, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the person meeting them at the airport and helping them get their bags and, and they, they just loved, love, love the people that they met. And they said, my, my personal idea of who is a Muslim man, woman, child has completely shifted because I've met real people and I've, God's Mm. given me a real love for them. And amazingly, they seem to love us back, you know? And I think that's what surprises people sometimes, but they don't, (laughs) they haven't had a lot of that personal contact. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, 
current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. So where would be a good place to start, um, you know, for if a listener is listening and maybe they're fairly affluent, middle class, white, realize, you know, they want to be hopeful for the American church, maybe feel a little bit disillusioned, um, but maybe they don't have, right, you know, their church is not participating in in these sort of refugee resettlement sorts of things so they 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 can't necessarily just go and be proximate but what would it look like to begin to make steps towards listening well they can certainly read our book and that's what you brought me here yeah. to talk about <laughs> but all, all kidding aside we brag that one of the best parts of our book is the bibliography because we mm-hmm. we encountered so many amazing global christians that we had not read before and then some we interviewed and got to know in person. So that really becomes a mm-hmm. good starting place just for hearing and being influenced by some of these Christians who have been such an incredible example and testimony for us. And so I would say that, you know, get, get past the first few pages. If for that person you described, if they're, if they're a little sensitive over topics related to justice and things like that, push past the sensitivity mm-hmm approach the book and the voices yeah. with a listening posture and you'll be blessed by them. We're, we're, we're not trying to come off as strong as maybe it might seem in the beginning, but part of establishing the, the issues at hand means we had to deal pretty honestly with things that we hear and see. Yeah. I think that um, in every city and most people live nearby a city, you will have a world relief mm-hmm. office or a resettlement agency that would open up, open up opportunities for volunteering where you would get to meet some Christians who come from different walks of life that would surprise you. Your church has mm-hmm. access to people mm-hmm. who are experiencing poverty, but living with great faith. I'm sure they do. And so, with, you know, another marginalized group we talk about a lot in the book are people who are below the poverty line or, you know, there's an African-American mm-hmm. church nearby folks who are in a mostly white church and you know, how many times do we have conversations about racial reconciliation only with people who are of our race and are basically our age? Right. <laughs> how many churches are actually yeah. willing to engage in that conversation and ask their black brothers and sisters how they feel about it or their Hispanic brothers right. and sisters or their Native American brothers and sisters? You know, it's we all are, have, a, have a lot of echo chambers in our life. And so I think that One of the things we try to do in the book at the end of every chapter is give some discussion questions if, say, a small group was using the book, but also we give some practical action Mm -hmm. steps. And sometimes it'll say, go read this scripture this week, or, you know, here's an idea of who you might reach out to or something you might read and and begin to broaden your relational conversations a bit. And I think we all benefit Mm -hmm. from that. And, uh, And I've certainly benefited from that. So I think the personal engagement is good. We try to give give some resources, but I'm sure that just a little bit of a search about some local opportunities would tell folks there are some places you could have that engagement in your community as well. I mean, we're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
you know, we're not New York City. We're right. mid, we're Midwest right. slash South slash kind of influenced by Texas. And so it, for that to be possible <laughs> in a city like ours, it's possible anywhere. Yeah, I think, you know, I do appreciate the bibliography and it's really, I think, you know, your book does strike such a nice note. Um, you know, often books that are justice focused can scare away people who, like you were talking about the divide earlier, right, who who feel like, oh, well, now you're liberalizing your theology or, or your orthodoxy. Um, and so to say, actually, we have hope and things are built into the scriptures and that they are not you know, easily teased apart. Um, it really restores, I think, just a biblical sense of what does it look like to to grow in health <laughs> again, you know, as the institutional church. Um, and like we can't we can't always be on the top of the top of the pile because <laughs> we've obviously fallen. <laughs> You're right. And I I mean I pastor a Southern Baptist church. So I mean, yeah. our our convention of churches is not having pleasant conversations about justice right now. Right. We've 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 lost folks. We've hemorrhaged some wonderful folks in the last few years mm-hmm. simply because we'd rather spin wheels in the mud and throw mud on each other than have real com- honest conversations about where we've failed mm-hmm. or where we're failing in areas of related to race, justice, women in leadership. I mean, we could go down the list. <laughs> right. And and that's where Matt and Daniel and I are. We know a lot of people have left behind the evangelical label Mm -hmm. and we understand why, but we have not yet. And we feel like because we're still active in the evangelical sector and world, we can still have an influence Yeah, and we can still call us back to what we believe are faithful voices and those inalienable truths of that God has built into the fabric of this age we're in with the kingdom of God and, and the foundation of scripture. And so I believe we've been faithful to that, but also instead of going on the attack for those who have been critical, trying to open up to how can we address that criticism in a, in a hopeful and constructive manner and go forward and maybe keep save this ship from sinking. Yeah. Or at least as we use the illustration that, you know, comes from an ancient rabbi, not keep drilling holes in the bottom of the ship ourselves. That's what we've been doing. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think any of us, I don't think any of the three of us are going to ride that ship all the way to the bottom. Yeah. But we're still on it. And we want to be able to be a a positive influence and, and, and have a listening posture towards others. How do we, you know, I'm just thinking both personally and maybe corporately or institutionally, you know, you talked about the. I like the the mudslinging example about, you know, we're, we're just throwing mud on one another and we're also not actually solving any problems or, you know, our wheels are just going deeper. Um, you know, how do we, you know, you could think, okay, individually, you could have a conversation with someone who is in the mudslinging category, but you know, how do we maybe even if we think one level up or two levels up, um, begin to corporately or, you know, a collection of places or churches in a particular place. I'm just thinking, how does this change larger scale than just you going out and having a few conversations with, with folks that you know, maybe in your, your denomination? I love that what you're thinking, I, what I, I perceive you're thinking in that question. How do we exchange some seats at the table of leadership? And I think that 
that has to, we have to be willing to do what I hope we've done in the book, elevate some voices that are already there that for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. we've just, we've just not heard or listened to or been, you know, I hate to use the word platform, but, but let them come up to the microphone, let them have Mm -hmm. the seats on the board of leadership, let them um, be in the the places where they have the title and we put ourselves in a role of submission and learning. That's hard. People don't want to give up their seats. They don't want to give up their title. But I think we can all agree that a lot of the voices who are at least loudest or most recognized have have been failing in some of these conversations right now. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, we, we have to be willing to submit to leaders that are maybe different than we've typically listened to or have influenced our lives. And I, rem- I, I share a story in the book about now, thankfully, this happened to me in my early 20s, but in my early 20s, I was in a, in a setting in Amsterdam where there were just Christians from all over the world all around me. And I realized mm-hmm. as a young, you know, soon to be Christian leader, how few global voices or voices of color had ever influenced my life. And yeah. we need more of that. And, and that means some of us have to be willing to step back and and some of our, we have to be willing to quote and listen to some other leaders and let those folks have, have, you know, positions of influence and seats at the table. So I, we mm-hmm. talk about that some in the book, that's, that's something we think is important and we want, we want to see that happen. And we give some examples like uh, the National Association of Evangelicals and Walter Kim as the president now, and some mm-hmm. other global Christians who are really getting those opportunities and they are flourishing in those opportunities. Yeah. And so we, we think that there needs to be more of that. Yeah. And so what would you, what helps you hold on to hope for, for some change for the American church as we, as we move forward? I mean, obviously your book is hopeful, um, but it can get dirty right down, down in it day to day. So what, what keeps you holding on besides Jesus? (laughs) The Sunday school answer. (laughs) Well, I'm tempted to name names, but I won't. Um, but let's just say, you know, we know some examples, folks, if, if, if your listeners are, are pretty engaged in the American Christian world and weird, weird Christian Twitter and all those things, <laughs> right? we've had some pretty awful examples and even long podcast series done recently of some folks who've had the microphone in the recent past, right? have been uh, angry, not been living with integrity behind the scenes. Um, have been toxic. My experience is that that is not most people in the American church or evangelical churches even. It's certainly yeah. not true in my own church. I mean, in six years, believe me, in a Southern Baptist church reaching out to the immigrant refugee community or being involved in racial reconciliation, I've gotten some ugly stuff. But by and large, never from our church. Our folks, mm-hmm. they are generous and kind and loving and open, and they don't want to be toxic. They don't want to, they don't want to have nothing but angry voices speaking to them, but sometimes that's all they hear. Yeah. And I've been very blessed in working with people like Matt and Daniel and meeting some of their friends and then meeting some of mine to know that we've got some amazing men and women serving in, in leadership roles and just serving day to day in our churches. And I have a lot of hope that some of those really toxic voices don't represent the majority, but unfortunately yeah. 
they have a, a loud and influence and a widespread influence that uh, hopefully people will keep pushing back against and they'll, they'll fade to the back at some point. Yeah, that's good. Maybe just step off Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, I like podcasts. I run a podcast, but yeah, maybe dig into your local context would be a really great start and start reading some, some good books from voices that are unfamiliar. Yeah. We've got some folks in the Baptist world that need to focus on pastoring their own church and get off of Twitter because their churches are dwindling and dying, but their Twitter yes. impact is nonstop. Yes. So. Yes. Again, yes. I won't name names. <laughs> no, I think that is widespread amongst a lot of evangelical churches as well. Ugh. Well, thank you for being here. And as we conclude, I would love to hear your laundry routine. And this this kind of comes yeah, from um, Kathleen Norris is a, a writer of faith, and she she uh, comes back to faith as she saw the the Catholic priest. She says doing the dishes after mass, you know, where he's he's wiping out the the cup, um, and to see that God is somehow also c- concerned with the mundane and you know our housekeeping has made me also ask what everybody's laundry routines are. Okay. Well, I, you know, I am a, a very strong proponent of strong Christian women leaders. Okay. Yes. So I got, I just want to make sure that's clear. I'm known for that. <laughs> As I say, my laundry amazingly just disappears out of the hamper and comes back folded, hung up, clean. It's amazing. I don't have to do anything. It just magically gets done and I don't pay it to send it out. My wife is just, she is on top of it, man. And we've got four kids. So that laundry room is never ending. It is always running, but somehow she has figured out the system to keep it all going and done. So, um, you know, she, she just uh, really is amazing. Now we share a lot of responsibilities around here, but that's the one she nails it. So my laundry routine is ridiculously easy. (laughs) Rebecca Rebecca Costanzo gets all the credit. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. But that's, that's leadership too. You know, I think sometimes we can think of our household chores as not leadership, but I think it is. You're right. And I don't want to, and I don't want to make it sound like that's not the case. I just don't, I I don't want it to, my, my wife, provides wonderful leadership in our family and in our church and in lots of places. So yep. Um, Including the laundry. She doesn't I love want it. to be known only for laundry. Stuff, right. But for sure. I understand. <laughs> so, she sounds fantastic and efficient. I love it. Well, thank you, Eric, for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your hopeful book and we wish you all the best. Thanks, Ashley. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eric. I encourage you to grab a copy of the book. Russell Moore talks about it as a book that points us away from fear and panic and toward promise and hope and joy. And isn't that something we are so desperate for, not only in the church, but in our wider lives as well. So grab a copy of Inalienable, and you can also check out that great bibliography that Eric mentioned as a way for one small step forward to begin to diversify our reading and our thinking so that we aren't simply living in echo chambers, which is what social media encourages us to do. 
and encourages us through its algorithms that the loudest and angriest voice wins. And so your one small step as a point of resistance is to actually diversify the voices that you're listening to, not as a slippery slope, but as a way to practically remember that we do not sit on the throne, (laughs) that we are learners. And instead, Jesus will build his church. He's built it all around the world through the ages, and we have much to learn. So I encourage you to pick up a copy of Inalienable. The link is in the show notes. And secondly, as another small step, if you're like, awesome, I've already read the book, um, or you know, I'm, I'm already doing some of that work, I would encourage you to begin to pray and to move forward in your embodied local life to find someone to learn from. And of course, it's easy to learn from the loudest, biggest voices, but find someone locally. Maybe it's a pastor of a congregation that you don't go to that has a different and diverse experience from your own. Maybe it's a refugee resettlement team in your area. Maybe it's even just someone who you know is having a hard time, Uh, someone who's elderly in your congregation who needs to be listened to. So as a way to put some of these things into practice, I encourage you to learn more, not just in your own head and what you read and the information you gather, but also in your actual local life. Thank you, friends, for being here. If you enjoy this conversation, would you run on over to iTunes and leave a review? It helps these conversations happen. Remember, friends, big things matter, but so does your laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.